Heavenly Father, once again, we want to thank you for a good night of rest and for this new day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that are new every day. We thank you for your gift of salvation through Jesus. And we thank you for this camp meeting, this spiritual feast that we can enjoy, meet friends, and uh, listen to your word preached and taught. Lord, we pray that you would build up the faith of the members of not only the Michigan Conference, but the whole Seventh-day Adventist World Church. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word, come what may. And so bless us as we share this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday when we were concluding our time together, we were talking about Luther's appearance in the city of Worms, Germany, where he was summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles the Charles the Fifth, and we talked about the fact that he stood alone before the emperor, the secular authority, and the representatives of the pope, the religious authority. He stood all alone to answer for his faith, and he had nothing to sustain him but the word of God. He was not intimidated by the fact that he stood before the emperor and the papal representatives. But he was overwhelmed by the truth that he and the emperor alike were answerable to God. He defended himself on that occasion admirably. He didn't lose his composure. He didn't lose his temper. He was calm. He spoke well. He answered every question, every charge with reference to the scriptures. But it was not enough because Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, was descended from a long line of Catholic monarchs. Furthermore, politically, the Emperor needed the goodwill of the Pope. So politics was involved in what was going on. And finally, the emperor declared, this was his final edict after the meeting was over. He said, quote, Luther is to be regarded as a convicted heretic. Who convicted him? The Pope had, and the emperor was simply following 
the Pope's decision. And the emperor also said, when the time is up, 21 days, no one is to harbor him, that is to say, protect him. His followers also are to be condemned, the emperor said. His books are to be eradicated from the memory of man. That was the emperor's decree. Now, what was it that, that brought down upon that one lone man the full ecclesiastical power of the papacy as well as the temporal power of the emperor? What was it? Well, it all began in the Augustinian cloister at Wittenberg with Luther's personal search for forgiveness and his discovery of the gospel that had been buried under centuries of ecclesiastical tradition. And when he found the good news, the inevitable consequence was the peeling away of those traditions like you peel away the layers of an onion. Luther had become a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg by that time. But his theology did not begin with books or on reflections on the reflections of others, but, what his, but with his own personal search for peace with God. As I mentioned earlier, he had a very sensitive conscience. And he felt that he couldn't satisfy God's standards of righteousness. And though Luther was outwardly busy and very productive as a professor at the university, inwardly he was in a turmoil of guilt. And he tried every resource that was made available to him by church tradition in order to find relief. He tried good works and he discovered that he, he never could do enough to make himself worthy. He sought the merits of the so-called saints. And he ended with doubt that they could help him at all. And he tried penance. Going so far, as I mentioned, as scourging himself with a whip. Penance required 
that the sinner must confess all wrongdoing and seek absolution from a priest, a priest confessor. And so he confessed frequently. I think I mentioned that too. Many times a day. Sometimes his confession lasted up to six hours. Even bored the priest. Because every sin, in order to be absolved, must be confessed. And so the soul must be searched, the memory ransacked, the motives probed, and sometimes when he was in confession, he would review his entire life because he was afraid he might have forgotten something in his confession and he would start all over again. His problem was not whether his sins were big or small, but whether they had been adequately confessed. If he was truly penitent, he worried that he had not remembered them all, and because he hadn't remembered them, he hadn't confessed them. What a dilemma. And he was deathly afraid that his memory protected his ego. He was frightened because even after six hours of confession, he could still think of something that had escaped his memory and you can imagine the mental torture that that man was going through. He had become his own accuser. And he was relentless. The church had taught him that in order for sins to be forgiven, they must be diligently confessed. So the problem was this. To be confessed, I must be recognized and remembered. If they are not recognized and remembered, they cannot be confessed. And if they are not confessed, they cannot be forgiven. You see the dilemma he was in? And so slowly he began to realize that the whole penitential system fails because it is concerned with particular sins rather than with the nature of the sinner. For those troubled by sin 
the church offered forgiveness through the penitential system, the ministry of priests, and the mass. But that forgiveness was contingent upon conditions that Luther found unattainable. He realized that he could not meet the conditions, no matter what he did, or how much he confessed, or how penitent he was. And he tried fasting and prayer, and that didn't help him either. And he was told, love God. That's what his friend, Father Staupitz, told him. Love God. But how, how can you love a God that was seen as an angry, judging, damning, consuming fire? And so he fled from what he perceived to be the angry son of God to the merciful mother of God, Mary. But that didn't work either. And so he began to wrestle with two alternatives. <clears throat> Number one, Either God is capricious, that is to say, changeable, and the, the fate of humans, unpredictable. In other words, God cannot be relied upon. And whatever will be, will be. That is called fatalism. In other words, I'm a sinner, a, a rotten sinner, and I'm going to die a rotten sinner, no matter what I do. The other alternative that he was wrestling with is that God is malicious, and human destiny is already determined has nothing to do with my penitence or my confession. In other words, the lost are lost no matter what they do, and the saved are saved no matter what they do. That's called double predestination, which, believe it or not, found its way into the Reformation largely through the teaching of John Calvin. And so Luther at one point cried out, I wish I had never been born. Love God, I hate him, he said. And it was at that point in Luther's spiritual journey and his spiritual agony that, a, that another divine moment occurred. Johann von Staupitz, who was the vicar of the Augustinian order of monks, who knew about 
Luther's struggle. He, Staupitz, appointed him teacher, preacher, and counselor of six souls. Can you imagine? That's, that's a strange thing, you know. <laughs> when this Roman Catholic vicar of the Augustinian order trying to help Luther, he made him a counselor of six souls. Because Staupitz felt that Luther could be helped by the demands of teaching. And of all things, he made him a professor of the Bible in the University of Wittenberg. Every time I've read that, I've, I've always been mystified by that. And I think it's legitimate to say that God used Staupitz to help bring Luther to where God wanted him to be. Even though Staupitz may not have known this at all. Staupitz had no idea of the ultimate consequences of his decision to appoint Luther as professor of Bible at the university. No idea. And slowly, very slowly, in his agonizing search, Luther began to realize that it is the nature of the human being that is corrupt and that it is the whole person that is in need of forgiveness. In other words, he, he began to realize that to focus on particular sins only leads to despair and hopelessness. It, you see, it's the inner nature of man that needs to be changed, transformed. He began to see God as a God of love. The avenging Christ became the redeeming Christ. And it was Luther's meditation on the cross that convinced him that God is neither capricious nor malicious. One phrase from the Apostle Paul, Luther referred to him as dear Paul, was enough to lift his own spiritual burden. And it was the spark that kindled the light of the Reformation. Romans 1, 17. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the third chapter of Romans. And we'll read this beginning with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by grace? What does the Bible say? What does Paul say? He says we're justified by grace, by God's grace, by his goodness to us, received by faith. And so it's out of this kind of a text that he, Luther came up with sola gratia and sola fide. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And we need to be careful the way we say that, the way we teach that, the way we <clears throat> preach that. We have to be careful that we don't turn faith into a work. A merit. It's all of grace. We're, we're, we're justified by grace received by faith. And God gives us the faith. <laughs> Thank God he does. To believe that gospel, that good news. And then he goes on. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteous righteousness, God's righteousness, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then he asks, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified. Notice he changes his wording a little here. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's the kind of passage that changed Luther and started the Reformation. And when he began to realize that, he said, my church is in trouble. We have to do something about it. Something has to be done. We have to help the church get back to the biblical teaching. So when he read and studied and meditated on this word, he experienced a new birth. It wasn't just mental. It wasn't just his thinking. He spiritually experienced the new birth, what he had been desperately longing for for years and why he went all, through all of that misery of confession and penitence and so on, over and over and over and over again. He experienced the new birth. 
He was born again. And that kind of good news has to be shared with others. And so he, he thought, I can't keep this to myself. I'm obligated to share this with, with other people, with my church. Faith is not an achievement, but a gift. A gift that comes through what? The hearing and studying of the word of God. When that word begins to make its impact on the mind and the heart, the inner being of, of the sinner, faith is born. Here's the mission of the church, you see. Anyway, it has to be shared with the world. And as Ellen White says, its rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth and increase in brightness to the close of time. Increase, not decrease. And Luther said about that, he said, quote, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone, gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven, he said. And so it's no wonder that this became the heart, the very center of Luther's theology. And what came after that new birth experience was a sharpening and an application because his intention was the reforming of the church and the restoration of apostolic Christianity. And that was a noble goal. But what happened? It did not happen. The church was not reformed. Why didn't it happen? Because the church would not yield to the truth of the word that Luther had uncovered. Simple. And the wild boar, as the Pope called him, was kicked out of the church by the Pope, excommunicated. And by that time, he had translated the Bible into German, and his German Bibles were burned by the church, as many as they could get a hold of. And what did Luther discover in all of that? he discovered that an apostate church cannot be reformed, that it will not be reformed. Why not? Think. Because if the Bible is rejected, in favor of such things as human reason, tradition, 
or culture, there is no basis for genuine reformation. Ellen White called Luther a champion of truth. And so having uncovered the core of biblical faith, Luther and other reformers began to peel away the layers of ecclesiastical tradition. And by doing so, they threatened the power of the institutional church over the lives of people. The pretensions of the church that rested on the sacraments and the priesthood and the mass and the papal primacy were all exposed. First of all, were five of the seven sacraments that had been established not by Christ, but by the tradition of the church. If we're saved by grace through faith, then these five sacraments are no longer needed as exclusive channels of grace. The removal of the sacrament of confirmation and extreme unction for the people who are dying reduced the control of the church over the youth and over death itself. And the elimination of the sacrament of penance, of confession to the to an absolution by a priest threatened the control of the priesthood over the human conscience. God alone absolves people from sin. And he does that because of the cross of Christ, because of the shed blood of Jesus. And the elimination of ordination as a sacrament demolished the caste system of the priesthood and opened the way for a renewal of the biblical priesthood of all believers. And next, and all of this was involved and included in the 95 Theses that he had nailed to the church door. Next was the sacrifice of the Mass, during which the bread and wine supposedly actually become the body and blood of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. When the priest performed the miracle of reenacting the Calvary sacrifice every day, sometimes more than once a day, by exercising the power supposedly conferred upon him by the, by the sacrament of ordination. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says, Romans 6.10, the death he died, he died, to sin once for all.
for everybody, for all. His, just Christ's sacrifice for sin does not have to be repeated every day before the altar of every church. And the difference between clergy and laity is rooted here in this. As was also the superiority of the church over the state. No layman, be he king or emperor, could exercise that kind of power. A, pre a priest may offer a sinner a piece of bread, but he cannot give him, the sinner, the gift of faith. The inevitable corollary of the righteous, the just, shall live by faith, Romans 1.17, was that the superiority of the Roman church was destroyed forever. That was unacceptable. And that's why the Counter-Reformation followed in subsequent centuries and generations. The wild boar, as the Pope had referred to Luther, destroyed the illusion of papal supremacy for half of Europe. And the fundamental issue became Christ versus Antichrist. And while Luther found Christ in the Bible on the basis of what he learned from the Bible, he found Antichrist in the church. And the Antichrist, he claims, he found was the papal system. And did you know that Luther focused his study on the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 and 8? I was a Lutheran minister. I didn't even know that. And that study of Daniel 7 and 8 led him to the inescapable conclusion that the papal system is the Antichrist power. Christ, not Peter, is the rock upon which rests the church. the true church. Now, do you understand now why the, the church could not allow Luther to continue or to survive? And in his uh, book that was published in 1520, the title of it was The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Luther wrote for everybody to read he wrote this, quote, The papacy is in truth 
nothing else than the kingdom of Babylon and of the very Antichrist, unquote. With his study of Bible prophecy completed, and with that conviction in his heart, Luther stood fearlessly before Emperor Charles V and the papal representatives at the Diet of Worms on April 18, 1521. And at that meeting, no discussion of Luther's views was permitted. Instead, he was pressured to repudiate his views and revoke them. But he courageously refused. And he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, nor I will, and I will not recant. Because to go against conscience, he said, is neither right nor safe. So that simple monk and teacher stood his ground and said to the emperor and to the pope through his representatives, he said, I'm conquered by the Holy Scriptures. My conscience is bound by the word of God. Here I stand. God help me. Now, that was the issue then, and it is the issue today, 500 years later. No wonder there are forces that want to put an end to the Reformation and convince everybody that it's over and that it was a mistake. In 1531, Luther wrote, quote, not until I am gone will they, the papists, feel Luther's weight. He was right, as subsequent history has proven, which finally ended in the emergence out of Protestantism of the Second Advent Movement in the middle of the last century, the 18th century. Excuse me, the 19th century. But what about today? What has happened to the Reformation? It's not even being celebrated by Protestants. I am a member of the local clergy association where we are, and uh, I asked the man who presently is the pastor of the church that I once pastored in Besmer and also the one in Wakefield where my wife was nurtured and confirmed and became a believer and so on as a young, young person. I asked him, I said, uh, are you going to celebrate the Reformation this year? That was 
last year in 1517 or 2017. And you know what his answer was? He said, I have mentioned this many times to the Catholic priest, but he's not interested. And I was, I was dumbfounded. I, had, I was speechless. I couldn't follow that up. What, what would I say? Remember Ellen White's words concerning the light that was kindled in Wittenberg and which, quote, was to increase in brightness to the end of time? Now, I'm going to say this, but not with any sense of pride, but humbly, who are the people that God wants to use today to continue the Reformation? Who are they? Us. So is the Reformation increasing or decreasing? At the heart of the Reformation was what some have referred to as the battle between the Roman Church and the Reformers for the sole authority of the Bible. Today, 500 years later, the battle for sola scriptura is being waged within Protestantism. Today, we're faced with the fact that mainline, excuse me, mainline Protestant churches have been in the process of abandoning the basic premise of the Reformation to the point where it is being held that the Reformation was a mistake. And some are saying that it was just the opinion of one man and that it's all over. And in October 2016, two years ago, the present Pope made a trip to Sweden and together with the Archbishop of the Lutheran Church of Sweden shared in a joint service of commemoration on October 31. Reformation Day, it used to be called. Can you imagine? How many people know that? I need to say this because this is also part, what I'm presenting here is part of my personal testimony. But when I study this, now I know why God brought my wife and I into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now I also want to be careful to say that we still are very much appreciative of our Finnish Lutheran spiritual heritage. You have to know the history of that. And there's, I have a section on that in my latest book, The Road I Travel. By the way, you can get it at ABC here. Because the roots of our spiritual heritage are in the awakening movements within 
the, the Lutheran Church of Sweden, of Finland. And we very much appreciate that heritage. <clears throat> My wife likes to repeat her mother. Uh, when they were in church, in the Lutheran Church there in Wakefield, as she was growing up, when the pastor got into the pulpit, her mother always used to say to her in Finnish, Katopapin suhun, which means watch the preacher's mouth. What she was telling my wife was pay attention. Don't be distracted because you're going to hear the word of God. And my wife loves to tell that story. By the way, when we were coming down here, it was iffy as to whether we would make it this year. And it finally reached the point where, where it became possible. And when we were driving down here, we were talking about all of that. And, and I was saying, I wonder why God wanted us here this year and worked it out so we could come. And yesterday I found out why. This was not pre-planned, it just happened. Mrs. Lomakang, Pastor Lomakang's wife, she has a, a radio program on 3ABN radio. I can't remember the name of it. But she came up to us and she said, I would like to interview you and your wife so that we can broadcast your testimony over the radio. So we did that yesterday afternoon at 1.30, and lo and behold, Pastor Lomakang was with us. I didn't know that he would be. It was unexpected. So we were interviewed by both of them, and it was supposed to be a half an hour program. But we didn't have time in a half an hour to tell our whole story. So they extended it, so we recorded two half-hour segments. The title of the broadcasts is Stranger in My Home. And the text, the Bible text that we used was Jeremiah 29, 11, that God gave to me in the midst of all of that crisis. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And lo and behold, when I began to study the spirit of prophecy, I found echoes of that pietistic Finnish Lutheran tradition that's part of our heritage. So it wasn't a matter of rejecting something totally, but of building on something that was already there. I remember when I was baptized uh, at Pioneer Memorial Church by immersion, and a lot of people came up to me afterwards to congratulate me, and I remember one lady, she came up to me and shook my hand, and she said, oh, Pastor Holmes, we're so happy that you were converted. Well, I didn't answer her, but you know, I appreciated her congratulations, but it wasn't a conversion. 
I had been converted years and years ago before that when I met Jesus. I knew Jesus long before I knew what a Seventh-day Adventist was. What I wanted to find out was, does Jesus live in the Seventh-day Adventist church? And that's what I had in mind when I made my first visit to Andrews University. I wanted to know, does Jesus live on this campus in the lives of the students and the professors? And I found out he did. So that helped. But in this whole context, 500 years later, we need to hear these very perceptive words by Ellen White that were written over 130 years ago. She said, quote, this is from Great Controversy, page 204-205. She said, quote, the experience of these noble reformers, she was talking about Luther and others, contains a lesson for all succeeding ages. In our times, there is a wide departure from doctrines, he's talking about scripture, and precepts, and there is need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only, as the rule of faith and duty. The same unswerving adherence to the word of God manifested at the crisis of the Reformation is the only hope of reform today. I hope you get your copy of the great controversy out and read those words in their context and think about them. I like to ask Seventh-day Adventists, are you really an Adventist? Do you really? Do you believe that Ellen White had the gift of prophecy? Whether you do or not depends on what, whether you're really an Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist. So what Ellen White said there as Seventh-day Adventist Christians is, uh, is not only our religious heritage, our roots are in the Reformation. But it is our message and our mission, our mandate today, as she says, to the close of time. So the Reformation is summed up in three Latin phrases, sola scriptura, sola gratia, and sola fide. The Bible alone, grace alone, faith alone. She also said in Great Controversy, page 133, as a result of Luther's teaching and preaching, a living faith was taking the place of the dead formalism in which the church had so long been held. Following his defense before the emperor, Charles V on September 7, 1521, Luther left the city of Worms, 
intending to return to Wittenberg and his work at the university. But remember that he was under the condemnation of death of both the emperor and the pope. Excommunicated from the church, declared outlaw by the emperor, it was now against the law to protect him or to give him sanctuary. That was a dangerous journey for him to take back from Worms to Wittenberg. And his followers were also condemned. And his books were burned. He was in danger for his life. But he shrugged that danger off. But Frederick, who was the elector of the German province of Saxony, he did not shut it, shrug it off. As far as the emperor was concerned, the whole thing was political. Why do I say that? Because all the delegates attending the Diet of Worms, both Catholics and supporters of Luther, had to vote on the emperor's condemnation. But un, un, unexplainably, the emperor did not sign that communication until Luther's supporters had left Worms. So it was only the Catholic representatives that signed it or that voted on it. He signed it, the emperor signed it on May 6th. And that was an obvious manipulation of the situation until the emperor and the pope got what they wanted. And here was a situation, notice this, where the church and the state united to enforce a religious decree. Here was a secular tribunal, the Diet of Worms, entrusted with a case of alleged religious heresy. and whose judgment became the law of the land. It had happened before this. It has happened since. And it can happen again, given the time, the opportunity, and the circumstances. This is why the first article of the American Constitution is so vital. And this concept of the union between church and state in Catholic theology was called Corpus Christianum, the body of Christians not just in the church, but in the state. It meant that the church and society were indivisibly one.
and also that the authority of the church superseded the authority of the state to which the state must bow. Corpus Christianum. It meant, excuse me, unfortunately, Luther held on to Corpus Christianum, as did Ulrich Zwingli, another reformer, and in that his reform did not go far enough. It remained for others as the Reformation continued after his death to reject the idea of the union between church and state. Now, because of Luther's position on that, in Northern Europe, there, there are state churches in, in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland, for example. There is a Lutheran state church. And ultimately, this led to the amendment, the First Amendment to the Constitution in the United States. Now, back to the story. The curious thing was that it was Luther's followers that, uh, that had appealed his case to the emperor. And the Catholics opposed that appeal. They wanted the emperor to refer the matter to the pope. But when it was resolved against Luther, the Catholics approved it because it affirmed for them the, the Catholic faith as well as the power of the papacy and the authority of the church. The Lutherans, as the followers of Luther were now being called, opposed it, the decision at the Diet, because it went against them. What would have happened if the vote at Worms had favored Luther? Such an outcome would have constituted a union of sorts between the power of state and, and the power of the church to enforce a Protestant religious decree. And by the way, Luther himself did not hesitate to use the power of the state in dealing with his, co with his colleague on the faculty at the University of Wittenberg, a man by the name of Andreas Karlstadt, with whom he did not agree about the, the biblical truth on the Sabbath. Because Karlstad had written a tract about the seventh-day Sabbath, and Luther persuaded the elector of Saxony to have Karlstad banished from the university. And Karlstad went to uh, Holland to live among the Sabbatarian Anabaptists. And lo and behold, there's a statement that Luther made in, in a letter that he had written to Philip Melanchthon, who was another of his colleagues at the university. And he, he was writing about Karlstad, and Luther said to um, uh, Melanchthon, if Karlstad keeps writing about the Sabbath, 
we will all be keeping the seventh day, unquote. I found that in the library, in the seminary library at Andrews. At any rate, the Elector Frederick, who was Luther's friend, wanted to protect him. And he arranged to have Luther kidnapped, abducted, on his way back to Wittenberg. And when they were passing through some woods, Luther's wagon was attacked by armed horsemen, and with a lot of shouting and a great show of violence, he was dragged to the ground. He was put on a horse, and he was taken by roundabout roads to the ancient Wartburg Castle. This was all at, on the orders of the elector, Frederick of Saxony. Because Fre and Frederick did, didn't want to know where he was taken so that he could deny knowledge of where he was. And he spent a year there at the, in the castle at Wartburg. And he was all alone. He suffered from insomnia and depression. Can you imagine his position at that point? And what was his cure? Work. Idleness is the devil's playground. And so while he was at the Wartburg, he translated the New Testament into German and wrote about a dozen other books. And near the end of that year, the town council in Wittenberg, together with the local congregation, begged him to return in spite of Frederick's fear that it might provoke disorder and deeply worried and concerned about events in Wittenberg, Luther went, wrote to the elector, he said, the devil is at work in this. <coughs> Why did he say that? <coughs> Excuse me. What was going on in Wittenberg when he was at the Wartburg that he considered the work of the devil? Well, his friends in Wittenberg had kept him informed that the Reformation was moving with great speed, almost out of control. And in his absence, leadership was in the hands of his friend, Philip Melanchthon, who was the professor of Greek, and Karlstadt, who was professor of theology. And one change was rapidly following another. Priests and nuns were getting married. The wine in communion was being given to the people as it had not been doing for centuries. Uh, the bread was placed in their own hands instead of put on their tongues by the priest. They communed without having gone to prior confession. Priests conducted services in plain clothes. Mass was no longer seen as a sacrifice, but as a thanksgiving to God. German, instead of Latin, was used in the Mass. But Mass for the dead was over, ceased. It wasn't done anymore. 
and enrollment dropped in the university because students were no, no longer supported by church stipends. And many people withdrew their endowments to the university. And many monks began to leave the cloisters. Up until then, the Reformation had affected only the theologians and the clergy. But with these kind of rapid changes, the people began to realize that the Reformation really meant something significant. It was not just a debate among scholars, but it influenced their everyday lives. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.